I invite you to put your trust and your resolve to obey in, at work as we turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We started last week a series on how to make peace. We specifically have in mind the making of peace, not the preserving of it, as vitally important as that is, but the making of it, that is to say the reclaiming of it. How do we resolve conflicts? within families, within the church? How do we go about making peace? And this is the second sermon, and I want to turn to Ephesians with you. The first four verses. Of uh, chapter four. Listen again to God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And let me actually end there, verse 3. We took, as it were, our starting place, our launch pad, that little exhortation in the book of Philippians that Paul gives to two women, Eodia and Syntyche. They've apparently had a falling out, and we've undertaken, as it were, this series to try to get them back together again, at least to ask ourselves the question, what biblical principles would need to be implemented to restore peace between these two women, of course, long ago, now passed away, and more relevantly to us, between ourselves and our brothers. We began with the most basic step of all, that of confession of sin. If you weren't here last week, try to secure uh, a duplicate of the tape of that. Confession of sin is the black top, it's the tarmac on which all reconciliation happens. It's the most basic. But I want you to envision for a moment... Taking, again, Eodia and Syntyche as sort of our, our uh, test case. Imagine with me that the conflict between these two women was entirely Syntyche's fault. Syntyche had sinned. Eodia was innocent. Imagine that for a moment. It's highly unlikely, of course, with any conflict if it comes out so neatly. But imagine that with me. Last week... We focused on Syntyche's responsibility to go and confess her sin to Eodia. But, given again the assumption that Syntyche is entirely at fault, you can readily see that there are also responsibilities that fall to Eodia in the resolving of this conflict. If Syntyche does come to her and confess her sin, Eodia will need to forgive her. That's an extremely important part of this process, and we are going to devote time in a few weeks to that theme of what forgiveness is. But what if Syntyche doesn't come? She's sinned, Eodia is offended, but she doesn't come to her sister to confess her sin. What then? Is peace impossible? 
Well, no, it's not impossible, but it will depend on Iodia to take the initiative. She will need to go and confront her sister. And how to do that in love will also be the theme of an upcoming sermon. We need to consider that very carefully. But there's another responsibility that rests upon Iodia, as I've presented them to you, that is as basic to the peace between those two sisters as the other's responsibility to confess their sin. Iodia, even before Syntyche knows she's sinned, and even before she comes to her sister to confess her sin, Iodia needs, first of all, to be the kind of person that's not easily offended. The Bible speaks of that as enduring all things and of bearing with others in love. Iodia, her responsibility is to be the kind of person that is, is, that is not easily offended. And it's also Iodia's responsibility in that situation to choose not to hold the sin against her sister, even if she never comes to confess it. And the Bible speaks of that as a responsibility of covering her sister's sin. That is what I want to talk about today. Last week, I put you all in the position of the one who'd sinned against your brother. And I said, to Matthew 5 and other places, you have responsibility to confess your sin. Now I want to put you all in the place of the one who's been sinned against. You've been offended by some insensitive or even unkind act or word by a brother. And here, this morning, I want to ask you, can you let it Go. The Bible is very concerned to emphasize the need to confess our sins to one another. It's also very concerned to emphasize the need when we're sinned against to be ready to let it go. This morning we'll do three things, Lord willing. We'll ask what it means first to cover the offenses of our brother. Secondly, We'll look at the practical importance of bearing with others' sins. And lastly, we'll talk about becoming the kind of person that is hard to offend. What does it mean to cover the offenses of a brother? And in using that language, I'm using language particularly found in the book of Proverbs. Would you turn back there, the book of Proverbs, for a moment? Both these verses I'm about to look at with you and the Ephesians 4 text will be primarily under our consideration this morning. Proverbs chapter 10 is the first place, I believe, that we find this theme in Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 12, uses the language of covering offenses. Hatred stirs up strife, says the wise man, but love covers all offenses. Look at chapter 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. And once, one other verse, chapter 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I'm going to suggest that that's something very much the same as 
covering another person's offense. Now, the language of Proverbs of covering is picked up in the New Testament by at least one of the apostles, and that's the Apostle Peter. Well, you don't need to turn there this morning. In 1 Peter 4, verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What does it mean to cover someone's offense? Well, there's something very nitty-gritty practical about this exhortation, both Old Testament and New Testament, to cover your brother's sins. The word for cover simply means to hide something, to conceal it. If the children in your house are hiding from one another and they take a blanket and put it over them, or crawl on the bed and pull the, the blanket around them, they're covering themselves. It's very simple, the thought, and yet that imagery is is quite remarkable because it doesn't speak of removing it. It doesn't speak of getting it out of your presence. It simply refers to covering it. You might think, you know, that that's not ideal, is it? Covering someone's sin is not nearly as ideal as dealing with it, right? And getting it all resolved so that it's completely removed. Covering it has sort of a pragmatic, sort of sloppy sound to it. You cover things that you, well, you can't do anything about, oftentimes. And I need to warn you that if you are desiring to have a neat and tidy solution to every sin problem, this is not a principle in the Scripture that's going to sit well with you. But it's a principle in Scripture nonetheless. The Bible says there are times when you simply need to cover your brother's sin. And there's, running behind that exhortation, I believe, this recognition that it is not within the power of each one of us somehow to remove the sin in some absolute way. We can't do that. We can't even singly on our own ensure that the sin will be completely removed between us and the brother. We can't, for example, ensure that our brother will confess the sin to us. We can't ensure that he'll really mean it when he does. We can't ensure, as I'm about to say in a moment, that he understands fully the nature of his sin. And so there are times when we simply have to let it go. The biblical way of speaking of that is covering it. How do we cover someone's sins? Well, at least in these three ways, brothers and sisters, we cover others' sins by not exaggerating their faults. That's, that's very preliminary, very basic. Now, let me say, we're not, when we speak of covering someone's sin, we're not calling for uh, an excuse-making mechanism. Oh, they didn't really mean it. They, they, were really, they, they weren't really being what I think they were. They didn't mean it. They're not really trying to hurt. Sometimes we can do that, and uh, that's not altogether healthy because we're not being honest with ourselves. But on the other hand, in this case, I ask you in your own conscience to ratify isn't it the case that when someone offends us, we can actually blow it up bigger than it is? We could excuse it away, but we can also blow it up bigger than it is. And because we can't see our brother's heart, we begin to put the worst possible construction on it. That is going in the opposite direction, brothers and sisters, from covering their sin. That's going in the opposite direction. Second thing covering involves is focusing on your brother's good qualities, his kindness, his goodness. If you will, imagine with me that you're living in a house in which, shall we say, there is ongoing 
renovation. It's not a new house. It's a house with some age on it and some things are broken. And you've started to work on some of those things, but um, uh, there are a few unfinished projects in the house. For some of you, this will not be uh, altogether imagination, as it is not for me. Well, isn't there not times, uh, say, when you go to someone's house and you recognize that, oh my, there's a, um, there's a rather gaping hole right over there. And uh, they're just having to live with that for right now. And as you're with them in their home and you don't want them to feel bad about that, they explain what's going on. You also are able to recognize that they haven't allowed the whole house to look like that one day in home. No, they've actually continued to keep things around. There are curtains around the windows. There's tablecloths on the table. And there are uh, fine things in various places. Now, you can spend your time in that visit staring at the hole in the wall. Or you can spend your time in that visit Focusing on the things that they have made beautiful and attractive. Covering the sin of another person involves not staring at what is still under renovation in their life, but on appreciating and making much of what God has grace has done. But thirdly and most importantly, we cover the sins of our brother by disciplining our thoughts against dwelling on those sins. Covering boils down to this, not thinking about our brother's sins. That's what it boils down to. A certain discipline of the thought life. You see, when someone sins against you, they incur a certain liability. They deserve, in an absolute way, to have consequences come to them for their sin against you. And one of the consequences that they deserve is to be alienated from you. And if you focus on their sin, that's in fact what ex- exactly what will happen. Recovering someone's sin involves not thinking about that sin, putting that sin behind you and releasing them from their liability to suffer alienation from you because of that sin. That's what Jesus did for us. He secured a release for us. We are liable to God. And all of our sins against Him make us worthy of punishment. But Jesus secured a way for us to be released from that liability. And that's what covering sin ultimately boils down to. It's a willingness. I'll use this provocative expression. To sweep some things under the carpet. A willingness to simply say about certain things in the lives of your brother, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to let that affect our relationship. I'm not going to let that come between us. I'm not going to get preoccupied about this. I am going to get over this. I'm not going to think about this. I commit. Oh, Lord, I commit not to think about this. Now, Matt, maybe the question is coming to your mind. What's the difference between this and forgiveness? Sounds like I've been steering towards that sermon I said was upcoming. What's the difference between this covering and what we call forgiveness? And I want to say to you, not a lot. Not a lot at all. What I've just been describing, we might could call informal forgiveness. Now, I want to talk more with you about what formal forgiveness is. That's when the brother confesses their sin, his sin, and seeks your forgiveness, you grant it, and there's a formal transaction, as it were. 
It can happen in informal ways, socially, I realize, conversationally, but there's still something very formal happening. There's been a confession and a forgiveness extended, and that, we'll see, is a promise on the part of the one offended not to bring it up before the other person in the future. Now, I'm talking to you about informal forgiveness. The person's not come to you. He's not asked for forgiveness. And so you cannot grant it and make a promise to him based on that forgiveness. But you can still resolve in your heart not to hold it against them. And that's required of you by the Scriptures. The Scripture calls that covering sin. And yes, you may cover that sin and, as we say, be okay about that. And eventually he comes and, and confesses his sin. And then you may have to, for the purposes of reconciliation, uncover it and deal with it. But the Scripture calls us to be ready to cover sin in our brother. Some of I think, confused the people of God a little bit by talking about forgiveness as something that can only be given when it is sought. Perhaps you've heard that. Forgiveness is something that's impossible apart from the repentance of the other person. And those who speak that way will appeal, for example, to Jesus' words in Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And the argument is that there's no possibility of forgiveness without repentance on the part of the one who sinned. And I, I simply want to say... That's confusing what I've called informal forgiveness and formal forgiveness. Or, if you will, a disposition towards your brother of forgiveness and a transaction with your brother of forgiveness. And I, for one, am thankful that God does not operate according to the principle that he will not forgive unless we have initiated our own full and free confession of sin. He calls us to confess our sin. And he assures us that when we confess, there's no doubt about it, he will forgive us. He forgives us, brothers and sisters, many more times than you confess. He forgives you even when you don't seek it. And so this first point is all about covering sin in the part of your brother or sister. And so let me ask you, are any of you waiting, 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 waiting on your spouse, on other family members, on a parent, a child, a friend, or a brother of the Lord, someone in this congregation. Are you waiting for them to repent of their sin before you have a change of heart and put it behind you? You may not wait. The scripture says you may need to confront them. We'll come back to that. You most certainly need to cover their sin. You need to recognize that they may never, this side of glory, see their sin the way you see it. And it is for you, in grace, in a messy real-world situation, to throw a rug over it, to hang a picture in front of it, to focus on the things that are, that are truly gracious and good in their lives, and to not allow it to affect your relationship. That's the teaching of Scripture uncovering others' sins. That's what Iodia needed to have as a ready disposition, even before Syntyche sinned against her. Let me talk about the practical importance of bearing with others' offense. That's the second point. 
Paul uses that expression, that way of speaking in Ephesians 4. He speaks of bearing in love with one another. In verse 2. When he speaks that way, I think he has something very similar in mind to the word covering. When you bear with someone's faults, you put up with them. You don't let them bother you. Your love for them, in other words, is not conditioned on their stopping and confessing all their sins. And so when Paul says, look, I want you to walk worthy of the calling that you had with humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with one another in love. What kind of people does he think he's talking to? Well, he thinks he's talking to people that in their interactions with each other are going to sin left and right. Small ways, big ways. It's going to be an ongoing fact of life. And so he's calling on every individual, if you will, every Eodia, who's been sinned against by a sympathy. I hope in heaven Eodia will forgive me, by the way for using her this way, the illustration. I think she'll see the value of it. He's calling on every Eodia to be ready to say that. That's not a big deal. I'm not going to worry about that. And to get on with the business of the church and of ministry to one another. Now, this is of great practical importance for a couple of reasons. One of them, there are simply too many offenses in the church and in our families to resolve all of them in formal ways. I'm just making a very common sense observation, brothers and sisters. There's not enough hours in the day, quite frankly, to deal with every single sin that comes up between us as the people of God. Some sins are simply not big enough to require screeching halt and work of reconciliation, they're just not that big a deal. Yes, they're a violation of God's law. Yes, there's something that God sees about that that in itself, by itself, you may may well say is infinitely evil, but in the context of the covenant where we are forgiven in Christ, not every sin warrants all hands on deck kind of attention. That's just the way it is. I think that's what's behind the wise man's words in Proverbs 19. I read a moment ago when he says, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook an offense. Why does he say good sense makes one slow to anger? Because if you're not slow to anger, you are going to spend a lot of your time angry. It's not smart. It's not smart to recognize, as we do formally, Every Sunday and every moment if we were asked, yes, we're all sinners. It's not smart to recognize that and then get, get ballistic at every single sin. Now, this is not an encouragement. This is not an encouragement to any who comes to realize they've sinned not to confess it. May I say that again? I'll say it this way. No sin is too small to confess to your brother. No sin. You can stop in the very moment and say, I'm sorry. And it could be a short transaction of reconciliation. You become convicted of a sin. No sin is too small. But there are sins too small for the one offended to make much of. And so that's one reason why this is of tremendous practical importance. Another reason It's what I alluded to earlier. There are times when your brother will fail to see the full extent of the sin. Suppose you do go to him 
in a way we'll look at further later. And he confesses. And uh, has this ever happened to you? He confesses his sin that you've confronted him with. But somehow, his confession doesn't match your sense of being wrong. In other words, you're convinced he still doesn't get it. He sees only a, 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 a shallow layer of the sin that has so hurt you. He doesn't really see the full extent of the sin, and you can't make him see it. What are you going to do? Brothers and sisters, that is a frequent occurrence among us as Christians. And that shows, again, the practical importance of our covering one another's sins. We do that, as Paul says, out of love for one another. And I think Paul is, is refreshingly practical when he speaks that way. He's talking to people in a messy real-world situation. Children, let me, let me single you out for a moment as I speak of this, the practical importance of bearing with one another. I think this is especially hard for children in one sense because you are concerned, every one of you, with fairness. You want things to be fair, especially when someone's not being fair with you, right? And, and that's something that God has given you, a sense of fairness, a sense of justice. And it's very keen, it's very large in your own heart. So, for example, if you're playing with your brother or sister or another friend in the church, and something is done that's wrong, it's unkind to you, you realize that's not fair, and you want something to be done about it. Isn't that often the case? Sometimes you'll yell or shout and say, that's not right, and you'll, you'll be ugly to your brother or sister. Other times you want your mother or father immediately to do something about it. You at least want them to know, right? You at least want them to know that uh, so-and-so did something against me, and I didn't retaliate. But you want mom and dad to know. Well, those are two things that you often do, that you can do. Let me put it to you this way. When someone wrongs you children, you can do one of three things. You can speak to them about it. You can say, please don't do that. That's not nice. You can do that. You can also say to your mom and dad, there's been something done that you need to help us with. Yes, you can do that. And there are right ways to do that or wrong ways to do that. Your parents can help you with that. But I'm talking this morning about a third thing that you can do. You know what that third thing is? Nothing. It's nothing. That is, someone else grabs what you had, and you think, oh, I'm going to say something. No, I'm going to go tell them. You know what? No, I, I'm going to cover that sin. I'm going to play with something else. Or I'm not going to talk about what they just said. I'm going to, to simply cover it. Children, what we're talking about is, is kind of like something that's ugly that you put a, a cover over. And you can do that. And I need to tell you that if you do that, it may not be appreciated by your friend or your, or your brother or sister. And your parents may never know. But I want you to know this. God will know. And he will be very pleased when you do that. It is extremely hard to do that. It's not just hard for children, it's hard for adults. 
but there is there are a few things more pleasing than out of eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit. Children, that is to say, to maintain peace. Few things are more pleasing to him than to do what he does with us. To simply cover it and not retaliate at all. Now, that's the practical significance. Let me lastly look with you at becoming the kind of person that is hard to offend. I cannot emphasize enough that the response to offenses that we've been talking about is not so much a step to take as a person to become. I cannot emphasize it enough. We are talking about steps of reconciliation. Confessing sin is a step. Confronting and so on. Those are steps. But I, I can't emphasize this enough. This is a key part of peacemaking that really is not a step. It's becoming a kind of person. You see, there are times when offenses that we receive become embedded in our hearts. We've got to do something about them. And we've got to take steps to do something about them. However, there is also to be, on our part, the desire to become the kind of person for whom offenses do not easily become embedded. They simply never become issues. We have a way of speaking, perhaps taken from the animal kingdom. We speak of being thin-skinned or thick-skinned, right? Uh, as far as I know, literally speaking, there's not a whole lot of variation among human beings about the thickness of their skin. I don't think there is, unless you count calluses on people's hands and so on. But we know in the animal kingdom, there are, there are certain animals that one of the most effective means of their protecting themselves from other uh, meat-eating animals is simply the fact that their skin is so tough, it rather discourages other predators. They have other defenses, of course, but they've got thick skin. We talk in our circles about those who have thin skin, as those who are easily offended. Brothers and sisters, Paul is exhorting us to become people that it is hard to offend. And you all need to recognize that we all have, in certain circumstances, certain contexts, sensitivity makes us easy to offend in certain areas. Some of you need to recognize that you are the kind of person, temperamentally or otherwise, that is on the whole, in a broader way, easy to offend. You are too sensitive to the sins of others. In good time, I'm going to address the opposite problem. Those who are not sensitive enough, and for example, those who have a hard time taking reproof because it just rolls off them, they don't recognize it as the word of God to them. Right now, I'm speaking of those with the opposite problem. You have grievances, for example, that come between you and a brother, and it simply comes down to what was a, a careless word. Just a very simple, small, careless word. Or grievances that begin to offend you, that become embedded in your heart, that really pertain not to what was said or done, but what you think might have been the motive. There's nothing actually there to, to make you 
rightly persuaded there was a wrong done. Sometimes we become disabled in a relationship with someone because of a relatively isolated event. It doesn't show, in other words, a pattern of their sin against you or other people. Sometimes we find ourselves going to another person with an offense. And even as we say what we're offended about, we begin to feel silly. Now, brothers and sisters, what can you do about that? What can you do to become the kind of person that can go through the bumps and trips of everyday living in fallen world, fallen church life without being easily offended? Well, Paul gives us insight that I want to close with in the passage we read from Ephesians 4. The main exhortation is to bear with one another in love. But he tells us what kind of people do that. Humble people do it. Gentle and patient people do it. And people who are eager to maintain the unity of spirit do that. They're the kind of people that bear with one another. I'll take them in reverse order quickly. To be one who loves peace. That's what's necessary for you to be someone who's hard to offend. Oh, you're not someone without feeling. It's not so, as if you don't care what people think. You should care what people think in terms of those who relate to you, especially in the church. And sometimes we can take a perverse satisfaction in having an issue with someone. It gives us something to think about. It gives us something to mull over, to work on, to stew over. We can have a perverse delight. Paul says, you need to become people who so love peace that because of this greater objective, the little stuff, you don't sweat because you are so desirous of, of maintaining peace. Brothers and sisters, that requires something of us as persons. It requires us to not be the kind of person who's always drawn to a conflict but is truly saddened by it, especially when it involves ourselves. We, we take it as intensely unpleasant and are motivated thereby to do whatever is necessary to remove the conflict. The other thing, another second thing he says is to be patient. Patience is the mark of those who are not easily offended. Why? What, what's the connection? Anytime you cover someone else's sin or bear with their sin, what you're doing in effect is saying, look, I know that sin has consequences. I of all people know that. I'm willing for God to deal with this and not me. I'm willing for him to take care of these things. I'm willing for him and his spirit to convict that man in his own time frame. Even if it's not until the last day, I'm willing for, for God to take care of this. I am patient about that. Yes, I love justice, but I'm patient and willing for God to be the one who executes justice. And perhaps most important of all, the one that he begins with, is humility. If you are a proud person, chances are you're someone who is easily offended. If you're easily offended, chances are it's because of an unsubdued spirit of pride. Who are they to do that to me? That was a violation of my 
rights or my prerogatives. Who are they in relation to me? And you see, humility answers that question. They're just a sinner like I am. We've both so heinously violated God's law and offended Him. It turns the question on its head. Who am I to be offended? Who am I to be offended by what He did to me in light of all that I've done to God Himself? So, brothers and sisters, the more that we sing songs like we sang over this morning, Jesus, Jesus is my comfort. He's my hope. He's my trust. He's the one who's taken away my sins. He's the one who's shown me with a true index of how unworthy I am by His death and sufferings there on the cross. The more we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the less we will think of others' sins. Do you see how you see how this whole matter, we've taken up together, reconciling with one another, is not just a concern that is a sibling concern within the family of God. It's a concern in the way we relate to our Heavenly Father. Because whether we resolve these issues among ourselves as brothers and sisters affects how much we really understand what pains He's taken to reconcile us to Himself. Therein lies its great importance for us. Let's go to the Lord now and thank Him for His covering of our sins and seek His help in doing the same with others. Lord God, we want to become the kind of person that you are. We say that humbly, even fearfully, but that's how you've invited us to speak, and so we speak that way. We want to be slow to anger. It only makes sense, after all. Abounding in love and kindness, how else would we be? We want to be one who is ready to show mercy who's already, before a brother or sister confesses their sin, already forgiven them in our hearts. Because that's how you've been to us. Each time we've come, as we did this morning, to confess our sin to you, we have not found you unreceptive. We've not found you disinclined. You already, in Christ, have forgiven us. So, Lord, we pray, give us these instinctive, intuitive, reflexive responses to the smallest and the largest sins of our brothers and sisters. Don't let us dishonor you and cheapen your grace to us by holding out, even in our own mind's eye, the sins of others. You have not made more of our sins than they really are. You have not allowed yourself to dwell in our sins. You've told us that you don't even think about them. And so we thank you and pray, give us such similar grace with one another. And we pray that you will give us this so that there might be, among Eodias and Syntyches, among all of us, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.